This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Chris Sinzak and Aaron Camaro. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Decibel Geek Podcast. My name is Aaron Camaro. I'm here by myself this week because I can guarantee you right about now, Chris Sinzak is probably out hanging a poster in front of a music venue or putting it under the windshield of a car or hanging one on a lamppost somewhere. Chris is out hitting the streets right now, but man, we've got a great episode lined up for you this week. We're joined by Sandy Gennaro, drummer extraordinaire. Chris and I sat down with him this week, and we have an awesome conversation that covers the gamut of all kinds of different stuff. You know, clearly... We've been stretched a little thin around here lately because of the Rock and Pod Expo. As we talked about last week, we featured a bunch of great artists and great bands, people that are going to be appearing at the Expo. I told you all about the albums you need to bring. And this week, because it's just me, Chris has been so busy. We've all been really busy. Everybody's so excited about the Rock and Pod Expo that I'm just going to go ahead. We're not going to do a middle break or nothing. You're going to get the whole uncut interview. I'm not even editing. I don't have time for it. Chris don't have time for it. So what you're getting is something sweet and special with all the warts. If somebody farts, you're going to hear it because there's no editing going on in this episode at all. So to get all the talking and all the introductions out of the way at the very beginning, I just got to tell you, I don't have time for Geeks of the Week. I don't have time to even look and see if there's an iTunes review, even though I sure hope there is. We're going to get all back to that next week. When the Rockin' Pot Expo is over, I'm going to feel like a huge weight's been lifted. I know Chris is probably going to sleep for a week. It's going to be pretty wild, but this party is going to be amazing. So let me tell you all about it just one more time, because the next time we sit down together and hang out and talk rock and roll together, the Expo is going to be over, and we're going to be back to business as usual. So you guys know all about it. We talked about it last week. The Rockin' Pot Expo right here in Nashville, Tennessee. This Saturday, August 26th from 11 a.m. till 8 p.m. at the... uh, (laughs) See, this is funny. I got a website and I got two different posters. It's at the Music Valley Event Center right here in Nashville. You guys know all the great people that are going to be there. It's brought to you by Bel Air, Ear Peeler, and High Vol Music. All great companies, man. Support them, support them, support them because they're supporting rock and pod and of course more than that even it's brought to you by you the rock and roll podcast supporters through all the different podcasts that are involved in this you guys have stepped up and supported this thing and i would just like to say thank you you know on behalf of chris and every other rock and roll podcast that's coming to nashville this coming saturday Thank you for supporting what we're doing. We all work very hard. We try to bring you guys product that you can enjoy every single week. And it's glad to, I'm super glad to know that you guys have our backs. So thank you for that. What are you getting? Over 25 rock podcasts on site. We just talked about them. You guys know the ones that are all going to be there. We went all over all that last week. So many great ones. Many of my favorite podcasts. 
I'm going to get to meet people for the first time that I've been listening to for a long time now. People I really admire. Some people that I've been on their shows and have never actually met them in person. It's all going to go down this Saturday at the Rockin' Pot Expo. We got the heavy metal parking lot reunion and screening. We're going to put it up on the big screen. We're going to watch it and then we're going to bring the guys out and we're going to talk to them about it. We've got the producers panel with Michael Wagner and uh, Kevin Beamish and Toby Wright. Oh, man, there's so much to keep track of. That's going to be amazing. Chris and I are going to be up on stage. We're going to give the people in the audience the opportunity to ask these masterminds their deepest secrets and cool stories about working with Motley Crue, Alice in Chains, and Y&T. Why not? It's going to be awesome. You guys can ask them anything you want. Come on down, hang out with us. We got the songwriters panel. I mean, we got who's I know. Wow. Who's all on that? This is okay. Well, you guys know it's too much. Here's something I will tell you. There's rumors. There's rumors that some very, very special guests may show up at this thing. And I've been sworn to secrecy. Because it's just, if these people show up, oh man, it's going to be amazing. On top of the people that we already know are going to be there, from Kenny Olsen to Gunnar Nelson and the guys from Roxy Blue. And, oh, here's something for you. Comedian S. Courtney Cronin Dold is going to be there. She's going to help me MC some stuff. I thought I'd look her up. You know, she's a comedian lady, right? You know, so she's got to have some stuff on YouTube. I look her up. She's known for doing the Kiss Cruise. And uh, according to YouTube and what I've looked up about her, she's only got one joke. But the joke is awesome. So go to YouTube when you're done listening to this today. Look up Courtney Cronin Dold. And uh, it's on the Kiss Cruise. It's her one joke. It's funny as hell. I love it. If it's the only one, it's good. So, I mean, what more can I tell you guys? You know, I hope many of you are coming. I'm looking forward to meeting everybody. Chris is looking forward to meeting everybody. We're looking forward to having a really, really great time this Saturday at the Rockin' Pot Expo right here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm done. I got nothing more to say. Like I said, we're not taking a break this week in the middle. We're just going to rock it all the way on through to the end. Because, man, Sandy Gennaro had Chris and I over to his studio this last... Oh, man, it's all a blur. It was a couple of days ago. Rockin' Pot Expo. It'll drive you crazy. Next year, let's do it somewhere else where Chris and I don't have to do all the work. That poor guy, he's doing ten times as much as I'm doing, and I'm taking the shortcut and not even editing this episode. So let's get to it. Chris and I, right here on the Decibel Geek Podcast, we're proud to bring you our conversation with the one and only Sandy Gennaro. As a matter of fact, I just... uh... Someone emailed me, the musical director for Queen emailed me today, and he's put together a corporate, like, a corporate uh, all-star band. Really? And he, and he wants me to do a Kip Winger playing bass, and uh, he said, what artist do you, Spike Edney his name is, what artist mm-hmm. do you know that we can maybe get to front this corporate? So one of the artists was Mickey Dolan's. Right. I suggested it. That's cool. Yeah. Wow. So we'll see, that would be very cool. Yeah, is this be. original music? No, it's it's or like just we, play, we, play, hits. we play yeah we play some of his hits. Oh, okay, I you gotcha. know, in, like in a corporate environment. I got gotcha. you. As a special guest, he right. come on and do. You know, 
Uh, that's kind of a part of the industry a lot of like regular music fans don't don't even realize exists. It's, like, be, it's under the radar kind of thing, but yeah. uh, but that's a, a lot of where your where your bread comes from. That's right. right. Yeah, especially the what they call the legacy artists. Yeah, you know, like the like the monkeys or you know, uh-huh. sticks even right. You know, Mark CCR, bands like that. John Fogerty. Yeah, yeah. Any of those guys, but they, you know, Davey, he loved doing corporates because. Well, there was a lot of things he loved about doing corporates was the money was like three times his normal yeah. fee. And they take care of you with really good food, the backstage situation, the rider, all of everything is provided. Yeah. You know, top-notch transportation, back and forth to your hotel, whatever. The thing he didn't like about it, depending on the corporate gig, usually we played after a dinner. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, there was, you know, the... People were cleaning up the dishes from what we're doing. That's got to be a little awkward. That's not the reaction I hoped for. (laughs) But that's the only thing, and that that didn't happen every corporate. It happened some corporates. Yeah, yeah. But it was great, you know, doing those things are great, and and people make are making a living. That between corporate Uh and Indian casinos all over America, they're keeping people alive, basically keeping the lights on in a lot of these people's houses. Yeah, bless the Mohican sun. That's right. You know. You could still do it at the age that a lot of them are, you know. Yeah. All the, all the power to but and that's kind of with the industry changing, and, and it's, it's more out there about the casino gigs and stuff. Like everybody does those now, right? right? Especially the heritage artists, but uh, or like doing having songs in commercials. Like right. used to be the kiss of death for credibility. Now it's like now it's you you are happy to have that. Right. Yeah. That's like a that's a badge of honor getting mm-hmm. you know songs in a commercial. Right. Right. Yeah. All right, so we, uh, I don't have, we, we're on now. Yeah, we're yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's the way we do our interviews. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so, that girl, I love it. I love it. Okay, cool. But yeah, we just, we just talk, you know, we're, we're, there's awesome. no set script. I mean, I might look, refer to my phone a little bit, but. Yeah, I mean, ask any. I, uh, I remember, uh, I think I read an interview, an old interview with you from a long time ago, and I think one of the things that stood out to me was that I think your, your dream before drumming was to be a major league baseball player. Ah, yes. I played baseball all the way through the second through the second year of college. Mm-hmm. I played second base, and I, I usually batted somewhere at the top of the order because I was fast, but I didn't have much power. I was always like this this big. Yeah. So two things happened. Well, I came to the realization of two things. At the same time, when I started college, actually third and fourth year of high school, junior, senior high school, I started playing clubs and stuff. When it got to be college, I started playing more clubs, like mm-hmm. two in the morning. And a lot of times I had to, usually those gigs were on weekends, and a lot of times I had to get up on a Saturday morning and practice baseball. And when it was baseball season, it got to be a little bit too much. I was either hungover and tired or, <laughs> you know, whatever. And then from being up that early, I had to go to two in the morning that night, you know. So Oof. it got to be where I had to choose. And then looking in the mirror, I'm going, well, I'm a junior, senior, uh, a sophomore in high school, and I'm, I'm 146 pounds. Man, I'm, I don't think I'm going to grow anymore, so... Uh, I really wanted to play for the Yankees. That was my, that was, that was my dream, and and still I'm a huge fan. And, yeah. Uh, uh, so that that put this kibosh on it. I had yeah. to make a choice, but you know, drumming was always the realistic goal. Right. You know, the Yankees was a lofty kind mm. of a lofty goal. But if I was uh, you know six six and two hundred twenty pounds, I might have given given it a shot because I. I, I I thought I had the ability to at least try it, yeah. you know, to try to go on behind college and try, you mm-hmm. know, whatever, whatever this uh, system is. Sure. 
But yeah, I still, uh, if it wasn't for Major League Baseball, MLB.tv, I probably mm-hmm. wouldn't have moved to Nashville. Oh, so you can I stay in touch with to get the Yankee oh, games. Yeah. Yeah, but now I, I get all the all the Major League games all over the America. All over America yeah. you know, if it's, everything except Atlanta when they play. But who wants it? Who wants it? What's the Braves anyway? <laughs> hey, now. I grew up a Braves fan in <laughs> Atlanta. just sorry, man. Come on, now. So that was I, Well, and, the, and, the, and the, we should be at odds because like my dad grew up in Milwaukee and he was there in 57 and 58 uh, when the Braves. Oh, the Yankees right. went back and Eddie forth. Matthews and yeah. all that, right? Yeah, he was, he was buddies with Johnny Logan's son, and they would hang out in the dugout at awesome. County Stadium. Awesome. But yeah, yeah, like, yeah, he's like, I remember Hank Aaron when he was 23. And right. I'm like, gosh. Wow, I was like, awesome. what was he like? Quiet. He was like, he never right. talked. Right, right. But uh, yeah, but yeah the, well, yeah, I guess you were in New York when the 77, when the whole... Uh, um, as a matter of fact, I wasn't in New York. Oh, you weren't? I, I happened to be in Los Angeles. I lived in Los Angeles from 76 to 79. So you missed the summer so, of Sam that uh, went down with well, the David yeah, Berkowitz. I missed that, them. but yeah. more importantly... And the I Yankees? Was, uh, Dodgers. Oh, okay. I think it was the Dodgers, the World Series. There was two years in a row, I right. think, 77, 78, or 78, 79, or whatever. And yeah. I was living in L.A. Oh, okay. So I would wear my Yankee swag every single day, just mm. to, like, just to, like... Just to ride Because I wasn't sure. a big fan of L.A. anyway, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was... Uh, I think that one of those World Series was Reggie's three homes, I yeah, think. Yeah, Mr. October. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I have a lot of... There's a lot of baseball stories, a lot of... That I ended up through David Fishoff, who put the monkeys on the road originally. Mm-hmm. He originally, before he was a rock and roll, the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp CEO, he became... At that point in time, he was a promoter to put the monkeys on the road, and he also handed, handled sports stars. He was a sports agent. Yeah. And he handled Phil Sims of the Giants, quarterback for the Giants, and he also uh, handled um, uh, Randy Myers, who was a closer mm-hmm. for the Mets at the time. Yeah, good picture. So we were monkeys were on the road. Randy was a big baseball fan. He came uh, he came to some gigs and whatever. We became friends because I was like a fan, you mm-hmm. know. Even though I'm a Yankee fan, I, I root for the Mets when they're not playing the Yankees. Right. York team, and I, I don't dislike them. Right. And uh, so he, uh, we ended up partying in China Club in New York when he was in town, and you know, after three or four beers, hey, did you ever play baseball, Sandy? And I went, yeah, I told the story, <laughs> I played in college. He goes, yeah, I bet you can't hit anymore. I, bet, I said, I bet you I can. I go to the batting cage up the road here, mm-hmm. and it's just, just for fun, me and my daughter hit some balls, you know? Mm-hmm. And he goes, yeah, long story short, he goes, yeah, I bet you can't hit it. And I, I said, I bet you I can. I bet you a case of beer I can. And he goes, all right, I'm going to take you up on it. I go, yeah, right, Randy, you're right. And uh, so he called me like two days later. I goes, he goes, I got permission to have you come up. What? <laughs> to take batting practice at Shea Stadium. I have pictures. Wow. Uh, so I went up there with a, my wife, a photographer, a video guy, and uh, he got the Bat, bat, Balls, bat, bat Boys uniform for me. And I, put the bat, I put the Bat Boys uniform on, and it was starting to rain on the field, so we took batting practice in a cage underneath yeah. Shea, the old Shea Stadium. And, uh, and he was pitching, you know, he was pitching like 70, 80, and I was hitting him, fouling yeah. him, fouling him off or whatever. And I said, all right, you know, kick it up a couple of notches. And he kicked it up to about 80. He said his estimation was 80, 82, whatever. Mm-hmm. I was fouling him off. And then he threw me. He, I said, let me see what a slider looks like. And he threw me a slider. And uh-huh. I'll tell you what, it's amazing how these guys hit major league pitching. Because yeah. it starts out, it looks like it's going to hit you in the head. And yeah. it ends up on the outside corner of the plate. You know, it was like... Yeah, it's like a magic trick. So, anyway, we did that for about 20 minutes. And he goes, Sandy, I got to get I got to get ready for the game or whatever. I go, all right, Randy, before you go, just have throw one, air it, air it out. Yeah. I want to see what 90, 90, 
90-92 feels like. And he, I said, I'm not going to swing. And I just stood there and I watched and I, I, I more felt yeah. what 90, 90, 92 mile an hour fastball feels like. It was like it cuts air. Yeah. Like it actually cuts air. And uh, you hear it yeah. go past you. And you have to react like a when it's in his hand. The re- when you talk about release point, how important it is, and I'm going, how important could the release point be? You got to watch the ball and hit it. Mm-hmm. But it is very important because as soon as that ball, if you suspect the fastball, and like if the count is like three and one or something, and the guy's got to come in mm-hmm. or a strike, and usually it's a fastball, uh, you have to react as soon as the ball leaves your hand, or yeah. else it's by you. It's by you. So it's more guessing where the ball's going to be when you. Uh, it's it's. It's it's not guessing where the ball is going to be. It's guessing what kind of pitch is coming. Right? Yeah. So it's a fastball, you know, and a lot depends on the count. If you have a two, if you have two strikes on you and no balls, then then you're in trouble because it could be, yeah. they could deliberately throw it out of right. the strike zone or whatever. But um, yeah, it's 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 all about uh, it's all about guessing what pitch is coming because that's gonna that's gonna determine the velocity of the pitch. And also, you have to take into account the count that you're in, right. because that will that will determine how bad he needs to come in for a strike, which right. will determine what kind of pitch he pitches. So it's a baseball is a big mind game. Yeah, it's there, like chess there's man. a science. It's just it. freaking awesome, and it's my favorite sport to watch on TV. As a matter of fact, cool. it's the only sport I watch on TV during the regular season. Right. I don't watch football until the playoffs, maybe. Mm-hmm. Right. If there's a New York team, I, I will. But mm-hmm. yeah, so. <laughs> But yeah, that was my experience. And then again, through David Fishoff, I met the the head of public relations uh, with the Yankees and befriended him. I made sure I was friends with these guys that right. came to these gigs. Yeah, sure. Oh yeah, if you want to come to the game. Now, not, like rewind, well, all right, that was, rewind the clock to when I was with Joan Jett, 1988, 89, 90. I saw on the itinerary that we're going to Evansville, Indiana, which is, I knew, which is the off-season home of Don Mattingly, who used to play with the Yankees. And I called Kenny Laguna, Jones' manager, immediately. I said, Kenny, I know you're a Yankee fan, too. We're going to Don Mattingly's hometown. See, see, he goes, I'll try to hook it up. Called him back a few days later, saying, I got good news and bad news. What's the bad news? I was un- unable to contact through the Yankees' office, Don Mattingly. What's the good news? Well, Don Mattingly called the office. <laughs> and he's a big fan of Joan Jett. He wants to come to the show. I nice. Awesome. So he comes to the show, and he, he comes backstage, and I'm like, I'm like a little kid. Like, I'm a, like a little, literally, I was like a little kid. This is Don Mattingly. Yeah, I was right. watching, the, it was off-season, but... It was 19... Uh, well, he, yeah, he was at his peak at that period, right? Late, late it was, 80s. It was like yeah. The, yeah, it was like, yeah. the, it was like the MVP or something. It was, he was in his prime. Yeah, he, he was, was great. Prime. He was a hitting, batting champion. And he won mm-hmm. the batting title one year or whatever. And uh, uh, so he came and he, had a, he says to his wife, Hey, Kim, take those little airline bottles out of here. So he's pulled these little bottles of Jack Daniels and mixed them with Coke. And then he, we were warming up, getting ready to go on, and he pulls his harp out. And we ended up having a little impromptu jam session. Like Ricky Bird played guitar and like mm-hmm. unplugged or whatever. And he was playing harp. And I was playing. Wow. He plays harp, and he's a very big blues fan, we yeah. found out. So anyway, wow. he's on the side of the stage uh, at the gig, and he's feeling no pain at, the, at that moment. And uh, he's air drumming to, you know, and I'm going, wait a minute, this don't matter. He's air drumming to my. <laughs> Dancing on the side of the stage, he invited us all to his restaurant. He had a sports bar in town. He invited us all to his restaurant. 
I made sure I jockeyed. I was walking in right behind. I was following him. So wherever he <laughs> sat, I made sure. I, there was a big table set up with mm -hmm. napkins and glassware <laughs> and all of that, and real tablecloth or whatever, a long table for the band, the crew. Mm -hmm. And I sat right next to him. So we, we spoke all night. And he was loaded with questions about like touring and what's a rock and roll thing. Just as I was with baseball, yeah. those guys are really curious about the rock and roll lifestyle sure. and yeah. all of that and the backstage situation mm -hmm. and, you know one of the chicks whatever <laughs> so uh, he gave me his card he goes here this is the house I uh, when I play during the season I live in Englewood New Jersey here's my number mm -hmm. and you know if you ever want to go to a game so it ended up that that I ended up at Yankee Stadium as Don Mattingly's guest wow more than one, more than once, and I was led to the runway outside the dressing room. And I, as a as a thank you, I had at the point at that point in time, I had a Ray Ban endorsement. So I brought a bunch of Ray Ban sunglasses, some some Joan Jet swag, some some whatever. So I met him outside. We met, had the meet and greet. Meanwhile, it was all being videotaped and whatever. And um, and uh, so I went back on a couple of different occasions. Now, for, fast forward a couple of years, and then I then went to Boston to see them. Don Manley got me on the list. I went to Baltimore to see them. Don Manley got me on the list. It was awesome. It was my. It was a vacation for my my wife and I. Every year we used to go to a base, you know, stay the weekend or whatever. Yeah. If the Yankees were playing it. Now, fast forward to you know, somewhere in the late 90s, and I met the head of public relations through David Fishoff. He came to a Monkees gig, and uh, he said, if you ever want to go to a game. So, okay, fine. His name is uh, Joe Pellegrino. And um, so I'm watching TV, I'm watching the Yes Network, and the, the, watching the Yankee game, and during an ad, a commercial, I saw a commercial with... Uh, Bernie Williams playing guitar mm -hmm. and, and Paul O'Neill playing the drums. I'm going, ah, that's cool. Paul O'Neill's a drummer. It's cool. And they were advertising the Yankee broadcast or something uh -huh. or a giveaway day or something. So I contacted Mr. Pellegrino. I said, hey, uh, Mr. Pellegrino, see if Paul would like to, uh, you know, I would like to meet Paul. I'm a drummer. Tell him I play with the monkeys. And um, if there was any... Uh, um, you know, if there's anything I can bring him drum-wise, some heads. Or mm -hmm. So he got back to me. He says, yeah, Paul would love to meet you. His kids are big young monkey fans. If he can bring some monkey swag, that would be awesome. So I brought some monkey swag. Now, this time, I brought my wife and my kid. And we were in the dugout. It was a day game, 11 o'clock in the morning. We're in the dugout. And Joe Torre, was, everybody's coming. The players, nobody's in the park mm -hmm. except the employees. And they're coming out with this with their like knee length skivvies and flip flops and all of that. And uh, so um, uh, Pellegrino comes down and says, okay, Sandy, um, come come with me, but your wife has to bring your swag with you, but your wife and kid have to stay here. Mariana will take them, Mariana will vary. It's like, <laughs> kid yeah. sing with my kid. I got pictures of that too. So I walk down, now I'm down the runway. Mm -hmm. And now I'm in the, 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 the aisle outside the dressing room where I used to hang with Mattingly. Mm -hmm. And I stopped there. There's two guards at the dressing room door. The, the dressing room door opens. Pellegrino walks in, turns around, goes, come on. I go, the dressing room? Lock, the locker room? Yeah. Yeah, come on. Just no pictures. I'll take pictures of you and Paul when we get them. But, uh, so I walk in and I'm in the, I don't, you guys, I, mean, I get the sense that you, you don't 
you don't have any idea the magnitude of my heart was pounding out of my chest. I am. Oh, I can no tell this by your It's like a priest. Story. It's like a priest going to see the Pope. Yeah. yeah. I swear to God, it's like I'm in. <laughs> I, I'm picturing the plastic over the lockers, the champagne being sprayed. Mm-hmm. The, right. I'm yeah. Going, a lot oh, of shit, I'm seeing uh, Tino Martinez. It is freaking what amounts to be underwear. Yeah. It's under under the uniform clothes. Right. And um. D. Jeter, Mariana Rivera, all these guys. So anyway, he goes, wait here, I'll go get Paul. And Paul came out, and I met Paul O'Neill, was standing in front of his locker, and I gave him all the swag, and mm. he signed a bunch of stuff, posed for pictures, thank you very much, That's Sandy, awesome. whatever. Yeah, it was just, it was just, it, it, I'll never forget that. Nice. And I have pictures to vouch, to vouch for. That's awesome. That's super cool. See, there's a bunch of other baseball stories. Yeah, I know. So we're turning into, into yeah, I know. sports we don't podcast. Want, we, don't want, we don't want to see But I love baseball, too, so I could, right. I could listen to that all day. Well, well, growing up, uh, being, becoming a drummer, who well, who influenced you as a drummer? Well, right off the bat, Ringo. Ringo. Uh, the I was always attracted to the early British guys. Ringo was number one. Mm-hmm. Always, but then guys like Dave Clark, yeah. I really like those, those. You know, I love the drum sound on his record. Even though I later on I found out it wasn't even Dave Clark playing drums. No, on the really? record. No, it was a studio guy. Didn't Dave know Clark produced the, those records, Glad All Over, yeah. bits and pieces, and all yeah. that. But there was a, a British studio guy that played on all the all like he was like Britain's Hal Blaine. He oh my played God. on all the no pop idea. stuff. Huh. All the pop like Hermits, Hermits, yeah. all that stuff. Freddie and the Dreamers, all that stuff. Wow. Uh, but yeah, uh, Dave Clark. Uh, then later on, when Zeppelin came out, wow. obviously John Bonham and uh, Keith Moon. I, I would. Uh, I didn't try to emulate Keith Moon because his style. Of, I just loved his character yeah. more than his drumming style. Um, mm-hmm. But John Bonham, and, you know, and, and, and Ringo, I guess, are the two major guys. Well, with, with Keith Moon, I think one of my favorite descriptions of the Who was. Four guys that are all playing their own song, like they're, right, they're right. all playing a solo in the yeah. same song. Correct, correct. <laughs> they really That's were. the way it was. Yeah. So, did you get to see the Beatles when they were on Ed Sullivan? I saw. Of course, is I that did. where it all started? Uh, of course. Well, yeah, that basically where it started. I I started playing about a year later, but that that kind of lit the fire. Yeah. That lit the fire, and uh, about a year later, I think that was February '64, mm-hmm. and uh, about a year later, uh, I got my first drum set. Wow! And it was, uh, I just stood at it. I brought it home. We brought it home, and, and I just set it up, and I just, I just looked at it. I couldn't believe that I basically <laughs> had my own drum set. Yes. But my mom says that my mom, get rest her soul, told me that even from the age of three, I got a toy little drum at the age of three, and I, she gave me pictures of me playing it beneath yeah. the Christmas tree and whatever. And I was always attracted to rhythm, like the butter knife on the table, like mm-hmm. a nice little action the butter yeah. knife had. And then when it came time, I, I, I saw a, a snare drum in a friend of mine's closet. We went to retrieve a spare softball. We lost a softball, and I went nuts, and, and I asked him if I can borrow it. And he said, I gotta have to, obviously I have to ask my dad. He brought it home over that night. I borrowed the snare drum. My mother said, okay, just go in and play it, but just put a towel over it so it don't make no, that noise. So I yeah. put it on the coffee table in the living room with a towel. And on the Victrola, which was the record player, mm-hmm. I, put, I put some 45s on like Surf and Bird and, mm-hmm. and New Orleans by Gary U.S. Bonds were the first couple of songs I played. Mm-hmm. Um, Let There Be Drums, Sandy Nelson. And then when it was time to give the drum back, I was in tears, obviously, and uh, my mom said, well, save your allowance and we'll get your drum set if you really want it. Let's see how much you really want and save your allowance. 
And I did that, and uh, I didn't have enough to buy the drum set, but she brought me to this it's Manhattan. We picked out a drum set. It was in 1965. Cool. Awesome. And it was, uh, that, was that was the beginning of the yeah. half a century journey. And I'm still <laughs> on still it. still waiting to, to grow out of this phase, huh? I was still wondering what I'm going to be when I grow up. <laughs> oh, man. So, so I'm guessing you were playing the, the club circuit in New York through the early 70s. When like when uh, when the dolls and the Ramones and all yeah, that yeah, was going yeah. on, yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I started playing clubs and stuff in like '66, '67. Mm-hmm. That's when I was like a sophomore in high school. I'm giving my age away. Graduated high school in '69. So yeah, it's all through the early '70s. That that era, '69, '72, and then I kind of did a uh, cover band road gig. Mm-hmm. I was based out of Scranton. And I did that, and then. I went on the road with a band in like the 73, mm-hmm. playing covers, four or five sets a night, nine o'clock to two in the morning, to 40 on, 20 off, all over the Midwest, like Michigan, mm-hmm. Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and that, mm-hmm. that area for about six or seven months, playing five nights, six nights, five, five nights, sometimes six, nine to two. Mm-hmm. And all covers, and with the guitar player that had a Marshall stack, they had just they were at the beginning of their yeah, and SVT, uh-huh. but they, they were we weren't at the point yet of miking drums. <laughs> okay. So I had to compete with Marshalls and SVTs with no mics. That's where it comes from. Five six hours a night. Well, because we saw we first saw you at the, the the Dick Wagner show at Basement. That was amazing. Uh, when when oh, he was, that was oh that was a nice little but that was little. But that was, was what drew us was like God, Sandy beats the hell out of the drums because like, that was loud. that was maybe that was uh, like <laughs> I was on like maybe five. Oh my god! Well, that was a, well the room. It's a small right. room. Yeah, small, small room, low ceiling. Yeah. Uh, everything is mic'd from what I recall, so yeah. I didn't really have to hit that hard. I, it just it was. But it looked like you were just beating them to death. Well, <laughs> <laughs> be your style. And that was that was really good. That was one of my first gigs in that when I moved in after I moved to. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and right. then uh, I did the Dick Wagner benefits over the last two. How months. did you meet up with him to start with? Um, good question. The guitar player in that Dick Wagner situation was Kirk McKim, right. who I played with, was playing with at the time with Pat Travers, right. mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, he Kirk knew someone that was contacted by Dick Wagner's manager, Susan Michelson. Yeah, and he was, Dick Wagner had just written a book and he was on a mm-hmm. book tour. Yep. And they, every stop on the book tour, he used to play a couple of tunes and sometimes unplugged, but when there was an availability of having a band, he would do it. And yeah. the Grimies was perfect, yep. the book signing upstairs and this basement downstairs. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this guy contacted Kirk Mm-hmm. Susan contacted this guy Shelly Farrell yeah Sherry F- Shelly Farrell and that's where we rehearsed oh, Shelly's okay. place yeah um, and then Shelly contacted Kirk hmm. and Dave Dave Fowler was oh. the bass player yeah great bass player and uh, so Kirk contacted me we, we have Dave Fowler me Sandy you want to play Dick Wagner sure yeah so then we rehearsed at Shelly's like two two days like five six songs well however many songs yeah. we did and then we played the basement and um, and it, it was amazing because I didn't know that much about Dick Wagner, but once we started talking, and then I read his book. Yeah, uh, it, it, we know so many people in comedy. Spent a lot of time in New York, or whatever. So that was really good. Well, he's, yeah, him. he's he's one of those under the radar guys, mostly known for right. studio work. Right, and like you don't realize. Then you look at his resume. Like, oh my God, he was 
a part of a lot of huge right. stuff. Part of a lot of stuff yeah. that he wasn't on the contract, he wasn't given credit for right. because he right. shadow played on yeah. a bunch of records. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was good. And I had a really nice long phone conversation with him, well, maybe a few weeks before he passed away. Yeah. It, was, it was awesome. And then I was honored to be the drummer in uh, the Dick Wagner Memorial concerts yeah. in Detroit that they have every year. Yeah. And, and those uh, seem to have done really well since they, since yeah, they started. Yeah, I'm hoping that there's going I haven't heard anything about this this year. Usually they're in January, February in oh, Detroit. Okay. Yeah. And Susan likes to put the date in place and yeah. start corralling the musicians. I haven't heard anything mm. about this year, so about 18. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, we, we interviewed him around the time, around that time when he was in town, and, and Susan was just awesome. She's, yeah, yeah, she's she a great, she great human. Awesome. Definitely. Um, but that's cool. All right, well, um, but yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. But uh, the 70s, that 70s era of New York is just fascinating to me. And sure. the music scene just seemed magical at that time. It's one of those things, and you probably have your own experience in your own life. While you're going through a, a, a scenario or a situation or a time period, like you mentioned the early 70s in New York, especially New York City, especially yeah. Manhattan, especially the village. Yep. Um, you don't realize the impact it's going to have later on. You don't realize how magnificent that time period is because yeah. you're living in it. Yeah. And then when you step out, when time allows you to look back on it, yeah. it's, it's totally amazing. There's several periods of my life where I'm like, wow, I, I, I lived through that. Yeah. It's just friggin' just going to see the dolls. and. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to go to Max's and yeah. Max's Kansas City and the Fillmore East every every single, almost every single weekend because yeah. they had the same bands there Friday and Saturday. So yeah. if you didn't go Friday, you didn't went Saturday. And two fifty buys you a ticket, and you're seeing Led Zeppelin open for Iron Butterfly. You're seeing <laughs> Jeff Beck group yeah. with Rod Stewart's first tour of America. You're seeing Cream. You're yeah. seeing. Jethro Tull, which I wasn't a big fan of, but you're seeing faces later on. You're seeing, you know, just the list 10 years after, the yeah. dead, the Almond Brothers, yeah. all these people for 250. If you want to spring for 350, you get the orchestra, but 250 yeah. gets you in the building That's and then you sit in the balcony. But, and then around the corner was the Electric Circus. And you, so you might have Led Zeppelin, Opal Fire, Iron Butterfly in any given weekend. Around the corner of the Electric Circus, the St. Mark's place, you might have Sly and the Family Stone playing, playing there, um, wow. you know, six nights or something. And um, it, it was just great. And yeah. one little quick little answer, though. Uh, we used to go to this place on Bleecker Street next to the Bitter End called Nobody's. It was just mm -hmm. a bar. And with a great jukebox, and we were leaning next to you. We have we used to have a couple of beers there, and then walk over to Max's or go to the Fillmore or whatever. And me and my friends are leaning on the, against the jukebox, and all of a sudden we see a white Corvette pull up, and it was like a storefront kind of thing, so you could see the curb and stuff outside. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a small little place, and out jumps. This has had to be '69, something like that. Out comes Jimmy, Jimmy with an eye. Hendrix. Wow. With the hat. The full get the, <laughs> the full stage regalia. He had the boa on, and, oh, and he had beautiful blondes sitting next to him in the Corvette. He double parks, gets out, walk, velvet bell bottoms, <laughs> walks out, walks to the back of nobody's, and picks up the payphone, makes a quick 
payphone call, hangs up and walks back out, and nobody gets in his car and drives away. And everyone's with their jaw on the floor. But this is, you know, this is early in, yeah. in, in Jimmy's career. So if you were a musician and were, were hip to Fire and Purple Haze, which were the two songs that were playing on FM radio, you knew who he was. But a lot of people didn't really, in that bar at that moment, didn't really know who he was, but me and my buddies. And was like, wow. It was awesome, nice. but that's that's the kind of thing you find, and mm -hmm. you know the village was just magical. It was just, you know, I'm thinking about it now. It was just great, a great time to yeah. grow up. And I'm really fortunate having grown up when I did, mm -hmm. you know, born when I did. It was, it was really cool. It was so so different than yeah. it is now. So. Do you uh, like? Let me run a couple of venue names by and see what you do. You remember the Hotel Diplomat? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't go there. I've heard of it and yeah. there was shows there all the time. I, was that was Mercy Art Center part of Mercer that? Art Center? Mar yeah, the Mercer. I think of the Mercy Lounge, Mercer Art Center. Was that a, was that part of Hotel Diplomat? I think it was a separate, separate. venue. I but used to go to Mercer Lounge all the time. So. Hotel Diplomat's famous for being the where Kiss kind of got their start. Was was they well? Ready, I they saw I out. saw Kiss. I think probably before the Hotel Diplomat at a place called the Coventry. You saw them at the Coventry at, in in Queens. Oh, wow. wow! And uh, I, their makeup. I don't know if this is true. Uh -huh. I should I should find out. Anyway, uh, they used to put the makeup. They used to burn cork. Chalk, a burn, burn like a the cork out of a wine bottle, mm -hmm. cork, and burn it over a fire, mm -hmm. and then that's how they applied the black makeup on their face. Really? The, 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 <laughs> rumor has it. I don't oh, know wow. for sure, but and that's how we used to. When I was a hobo at Halloween, that's how you put the black black yeah. face on it. Whatever. That's so, wild. Yeah, and then I went on to become uh, pretty close friends with Paul. Oh, now, did you? Now Eric and Bruce Kulick, I played in the band with. Yeah, we were going. Yeah, we're we're going to get to that. Yeah. Um, well, well tell me about Kiss at the Coventry. What were? You, what did you think of them then? Uh, it was. It was kind of raw. They yeah. were very, 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 very loud, and they played. You know, some of the songs off the first yeah. record, which is you know, cool tunes. I remember it was being really, really cool, and I remember walking out of there going, "Man, that's different." Yeah. You know, whether that people love them or hate them, they were going to be noticed and yeah. commanded, right. command opinion from everybody, and. Back then, it was uh, there was there were kind of they were kind of taking you know more of a femme mm -hmm. like a glam right mm -hmm. kind of like the dolls correct because yeah. yeah. they went to see the dolls at Mercer Arts Center like New Year's Eve or something mm -hmm. or at the Palladium or somewhere I just went to see them yeah Bill, at Bill Coin's suggestion and they saw how the dolls and they tried to cop that vibe and then Bill Coin had a partner. That was heavily into fashion. Sean you know, Delaney. What's his name? Sean Delaney. Okay. Yeah. So we're you know more we're, than I we're, do. Kiss, we're kiss nerds, but oh, you yeah. were there. We yeah, weren't. Right. That's why I want your recollection. Yeah. So yes, and they, and the, what's his name? Sean again? Delaney. Sean Delaney had a lot to do with putting them in the leather and yeah. more of a metally study right. hard rock thing as yeah. opposed to a glam thing. Yeah. But there's a couple of Billis Coin stories which go untold right now. Um, between when he was managing Billy Idol, it's a Studio Fifty Four kind of thing. I think I can read between the lines. I've yeah. heard stories from. Well, we have a. He was awesome, yeah. but yeah. let me put yeah. it this way: he was very, very respectful. Yeah, of me. you know what I mean. He respected my what I wanted to do. More importantly, what I didn't want to do. Yeah, mm -hmm. but he he wanted me to play in Billy Idol's band. Yeah, back when Rebel Yell was White Wedding or something. 
Yeah. And he had me up to his place to listen to the demos or whatever. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. It was cool. It well, was good. Cool. Bill was cool. Bill we, was cool. We, have yeah. a, we have a mutual friend in Cher Bach who was part of the oh. whole scene. Right. And, and she, oh, had, right. she had stories about Bill. And yeah, she was yeah. here. She was here taking a drum. I saw the Facebook post, so she's oh, wow. she's taking up drums now. Awesome! That's pretty That's cool. cool. I didn't see that post yet, but yeah, she she posted about so it. So I went on. Speaking of Kiss, I went on to become friends with Paul Stanley. Yeah. And, and we went to Eric Carr's uh, funeral together oh, in, you did. in Middletown. Yeah, me, uh, Paul Stanley, and I has a mutual friend named Bobby Held, and of course Bruce Kulick. Mm-hmm. So Bobby asked me, "Hey, would you mind taking me and Paul up to to uh, Middletown?" which is where Eric, yeah. Eric's uh, funeral was. So we, so Paul, subsequently, Paul and I used to come to clubs and we used to be in the China Club. We, just, we found ourselves in a jam situation on stage very, very often. Oh, okay. And then I met Ace through Anton Fig. Yeah. Anton yeah. Fig played on, yeah. as you know, he played on a lot so of stuff. Long. And yeah. I'm, I'm good friends with him. I hate to be dropping names, but... No, we, is, we this want is, you. That's yeah, the this purpose. Is the, this, is the, this, is the, this is the connection, but... Uh, we love stories about Anton Fig and, and Paul Stanley and all these guys. Love Anton was awesome, and he's still a very good friend. And uh, um, he called me one day. He goes, hey, man, I usually... Uh, I know you, you like the Kiss stuff, and, and, you, and you met Ace informally a couple of times. And I called him, and he said it would be okay for me to ask you to go up there. Usually, he just likes me to go up there every once in a while. And uh, and play. We push the record. Record. Mm-hmm. John Reagan, the bass player yeah. at the time, was I think it was with Frampton. Yeah. He goes, yeah, John. John goes, yeah, I can't make it today, Sandy. You want to go ahead and, and I think there's a drum set up there or whatever. It's Connecticut when he put yeah. uh, Ace lived in Connecticut. So I said, sure. So I went up there and put the. And that's where I. Put oh, was the this at the in. underground studio? No, no, no. It was it was an above ground studio, oh, okay. but it, it was kind of separate. It was connected to the main house by a little breezeway. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's the one in Wilton. I, think. I don't remember yeah, what yeah. it was, but it was a short drive from Manhattan. Yeah. It wasn't that far, and uh, so that's where me and Ace really bonded. And then we used to run into, run into each other at Studio Fifty Four. That that's another venue further uptown, Fifty Fourth Street. But that was another venue where in the, in the late seventies, uh-huh. early eighties was. Wait, classic. You hung out with Ace Frehley at Studio Fifty Four. Yeah, yeah, I can we, only we, imagine uh, what was going on. Uh, it was just. It was just. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a little R-rated, so to, it, so to speak, yeah. in, in the substance area. Oh. But um, <laughs> but we he has the most outrageous laugh yeah. in rock and roll, and <laughs> so we became friend, really really good friends as a result of me going to his house. But then we used to hang out and meet each other, and and then he ended up doing being a guest at some fantasy camps. Mm-hmm. So, so we crossed paths on many many occasions. Most recently was at the the uh, Rock Legends cruise mm-hmm. about two years ago. He appeared. Uh, and a good friend of mine, Richie Scarlett, was playing. Yeah, was playing yeah. with, so yeah. it was like, shh, you know, the older world. you get, the, the <laughs> older you get, and the longer you stay in this business, it's mm-hmm. like, it's like a pyramid. Yeah. The, the 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 circle gets smaller as you get as you go on in time, yeah. not as you yeah. get higher, but as you, you know, and you stay in the business because it's. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's, it's like a serendipity. Yeah, it's, it's like all the connections. Yeah. And, you know, you have no idea. You really have no idea where things are going to come from or who they're going to come from. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's awesome. It's just awesome. Yeah. Well, it's, keeping in mind that we don't have a problem being an R rated show. Do you have any cool Ace Frehley party stories that you can't tell uh, No, I'd rather not. I'd rather yeah. not go. That's a little private private little thing. But n- not really. Yeah, you could use your imagination. Yeah, right, yeah. There's nothing nothing really out of the ordinary that would be out of the, what you would imagine. For you listeners, listen to the Joe Renda episode. Yeah, no kidding. Did you ever know Joe? Joe Renda? 
Uh, I heard. I heard he owned. Uh, I think it was called North Lake Studio up in uh, White Plains. I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Ace used to hang out with him all the time, and he he was actually the guy who discovered the Jerky Boys. Oh. So, but yeah, he's a. Uh, Cool. But, but has a, he had a million Ace Frehley yeah. stories. So on that cruise, yeah. on that Travers cruise where Ace was... Uh, no, actually, I'm thinking of another cruise. We did... One of the last cruises I did with Travers was uh, the Kiss Cruise. Uh-huh. And obviously it was Tommy, Tommy Thayer right. and, and Eric. And I know Eric for a long time from mm-hmm. Badlands. Yeah, uh, I love that Because Paul O'Neill managed Badlands. He's the guy in Trans-Siberian Orchestra now, Paul O'Neill. Right, from right. A, he used to play in a band called Sabotage. That's right. Yep. So it, it, it's the, the network, is yeah, the, the roots of that tree <laughs> wow. go deep. So it was cool when Travers did their show and the audience was Doc, who I know Doc McGee. Yeah. For years he managed uh, the producer that produced Benny Mardonis' record. Right. Uh, Barry Morass, his name is. This is before Doc handled any rock and roll bands. He handled a, a local band in Florida called Night Flight or something. Mm-hmm. But this is before he got into rock and roll, basically. He handled the producer. And that's when I met Doc, and we became friends, and we still are friends. Wow, you've known him that far back. Oh, yeah, wow. 1980. Wow, you've done him longer than just about everybody. 1980, and I was I was kind of a long, you know in, in acquaintance with him when he signed Bon Jovi, yeah. he signed Motley Crue, blah, 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 all that stuff. And yeah. All that. So, uh, yeah, so he was on the cruise with Kiss, obviously. So they were all seeing Travers. This is like 2015. Yeah. And, uh, it was very cool. And then um, Eric came and sat in on, on a song. Uh-huh. And I stayed on the drums, and Tommy Thayer came and sat in on Statesboro Blues okay. with me and Travers and Rodney, the bass player. And then, uh, and then uh, Eric came up. And, and uh, sat in on a song with Travers. Wow. And Paul was there, and, and Doc was there, and Gene uh, wasn't at that gig, at the at RL gig, mm-hmm. but, um, but uh, yeah, Tommy, That's Eric, a and Paul were there. And, and, and uh, Paul's son. Evan. Evan. Yeah. He sat in with us, too. That's crazy. Right He's playing here in town on uh, Sunday, his band. So if you turn around, mm-hmm. there's a picture of oh. Peter Chris. Yeah, sure is. And... Uh, I Doc called me. I think I forget what it was. I forget what year it was. But when Peter was back in the band with the makeup on with Ace, when they reunited with the makeup on, they did an. You probably know this, being Kiss fans, they did an unplugged uh, with the Australian Symphony. Yeah, I was gonna because Kirk McKim told me to ask you about this story that you were brought in to help him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, he Paul. What 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 it was? They were planning on doing it with the a gig with the Australian Symphony. Mm-hmm. Paul Stanley wanted to do a lot of uh, songs that weren't actually Kiss songs, but there were songs that he wrote, mm-hmm. and he had demos of the songs with Eric Singer playing on the demos. Oh, okay. Okay. So Doc calls me, explains the situation. He goes, "Would you mind going over? Because I know you teach, and it's one of my things. Yeah. Uh, would you mind going over to Peter's house in Jersey with the drum set, and I'll send you the songs. Just give Peter, with all due respect, I love Peter Chris, mm-hmm. but he's not a drummer's drummer. In mm-hmm. other words, he, Eric Singer, played some parts mm-hmm. that I kind of had to digest." Mm-hmm. for yeah. Peter and right. give him a reasonable <clears throat> facsimile of that beat or that fill or that part right. to, to be for him to execute the song so 
couple of conference calls and Peter was feeling me out or whatever and I showed up at his house with a drum set and a metronome and all the songs I had all the songs and two sets of headphones or whatever so I did that it was the first 15 minutes were a little bit icy yeah I can, th- I can imagine uh, but he saw that I was an Italian number one yeah. yeah and I was from New York City and I was yeah. the age I was so I grew up in that period of the Coventry I mentioned the Coventry yeah you saw him when he was 20 right. or whatever Right, yeah. so uh, so it, the, the walls came down. Yeah, and he showed me around his house and Brick Township and his wife Gigi. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. and uh, talking and set up my drums up. And we set up two drum sets similar to this. And he goes, "Don't don't think you're going to fucking teach me how to play Kiss songs. I've been playing them for thirty years. I goes, don't worry. <laughs> no, this is not about that. But." We uh, it was very very successful. I don't yeah. have to go into detail about the songs or whatever, right. but it was very very successful. He loved it. I went over there for three times a week for about three weeks, two hours, two and a half hours at a clip. So it was like six seven hours a week or something mm-hmm. for two or three weeks. And uh, called me from Australia. He goes, "Oh, Sandy, man, it went fucking awesome. It went really good. Oh, awesome." So then they end up on that following tour. They toured with Aerosmith. Yeah, they opened for Aerosmith, right. and I went to see him at PNC Bank Center in New Jersey uh, as Peter's guest, and went backstage afterwards. And you know, they they come out in the makeup after, yeah. and they full they you know Gene after the blood and everything. <laughs> he goes and remakes up for the meet and greet for oh, the wow. Kiss Army. Oh, that's cool because they you know the guys paid a grand fifteen hundred. Sure. Yeah. Next, so. Uh, Peter, of course, Paul was there, and, yeah. and Tommy Thayer was there, and I kind of knew those guys, but I never really actually met Gene before, and uh-huh. um, at this point in time. This is before the cruise we did with Kiss. Right. And uh, so, uh, um, Peter brings me over to, to, to Gene, I introduce him, and then Peter walks off or is talking to my wife or something, and Gene leans over and goes, Thank you very much, man. I really appreciate you doing working with Peter like that. I go, man, no big deal. He goes, that was one of the first time in years when we went into rehearsal for that Australian gig. He goes, that was one of the first times in years Peter came prepared. Mm-hmm. He says usually he puts his sticks down after uh, after the last show of a tour and doesn't pick the sticks up until the first day of rehearsal. Mm-hmm. So it takes him three or four rehearsals to at least get the cobwebs and to right. brush the dust off his muscles and stuff. Yeah. But at this point in time, he... Um, he was ready. He yeah. was ready to rock. Yeah. So it was, that was a really, really good experience, and yeah. you know, and then and then Billy Amendola from Art and Drummer when it was time to do Peter Chris's interview, he picked yeah, watch that. Did you watch? Yeah, that? It was that great. Was very cool. Yeah, it's a really cool interview. Yeah, so it was uh, it, it was a good thing meeting meeting those guys. That's and, cool. And, and getting to know them, you know, you, yeah. you see them and you're going, oh, you see them at the, you know, in, in the early seventies. Oh stuff. yeah. And then you end up like hanging. It's, mm-hmm. That's that's another thing about this business. Like a lot of times, you grow up as being a huge fan. Mark Farner comes to mind at Grand Funk. I went yeah. to see Grand Funk at the Fillmore, the first tour. Blew nice. me away. Huge fan. Yeah, they were great. Don Brewer, the whole thing with a three-piece band. It rocked. Yeah. And then I ended up playing with Mark Farner at the fantasy camps. And not yeah. only not only playing with Mark Farner, but I was his chosen drummer. He t- nice. set the fish off. I'm not doing a fantasy camp. I'm not playing there unless Kip Winger and Sandy Gennaro wow. in my rhythm section. 
So that became, we became his default That's rhythm great. section. So it was like, a, it's a huge thrill for me. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm and somebody you're a fan, you're a fan of his, yeah. Um, That's a and then he feeling. was at the last Dick Wagner thing in January. Mark Farner was He was there? The, well, he was a guest. Oh, he was, oh yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He headlined the thing, yeah. and I brought Kip. Well, obviously, me and Kip played for Mark Farner, and I got Kip to be... Uh, I'm the one that brought Kip into this as a special guest yeah. at that last Dick Wagner Bank in Detroit. Nice. Wow. And uh, so that was a great, great fun. It was it was great fun because a lot of times in those gigs, in Dick Wagner gig, there's a lot of people on stage a lot of, at the same time. Yeah. But everybody got cleared off. It was a three-piece power trio. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, footstock of music oh, and yeah, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. It was just burning, burning. Oh, yeah. When Grand Funk was at their peak, they were they were pretty much untouchable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, show that Salt. show that Shea Stadium. In yeah, that's one of the biggest bands in the world. I think in retrospect, they don't get the the respect that they deserve. No, they don't. They're all, they're, they're never going to come up as often as they should. Than yeah. most people remember Grand Funk to be. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's a shame, and I'm not going to go into what I know about the business there. But it's a shame that they're not they're not a trio because mm-hmm. they're still Mark is still playing, yeah. very active on top of his game. Don Brewer and the bass player Mel are yeah. very active, and they have a Grand Funk Railroad without Mark Farner, with another right. singer, another guitar and Bruce, player, Bruce and Bruce Kulik. Yeah. Right. When I I saw them on a cruise, and they sounded really good, and they <laughs> replicated the songs. Yeah. But what you know, the business stands in the way. And yeah. Again, I'm not going to get into it of, of them as yeah. a trio. You know what they can get now as an all-original oh, funk railroad? Probably a lot oh, more than they're getting right goodness now. goodness gracious. Well, that's just another reason why that may, you know, ruin the business. Stranger things have happened. I hope that, I hope for Mark's sake yeah. that it happens because he deserves, he deserves. He's be cool the writer, the singer, and the guitar player. Are you yeah. kidding me? Yeah. yeah. So anyway. What, were you playing with Pat Travers when, uh, when the Gibson 100th anniversary show happened here in Nashville in the early 90s? No. Oh, okay. No. I, I was with him. My two times with Pat was uh, uh, December of 80 until like 83. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then 2010 to 2015. Okay. 15, late 15, early 16, I think it was. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it was 15. Uh, I, I'm not sure, but I, I, I left the band at yeah. that point in time. I was going to bring a vi- I bought, picked up a vinyl Pat Travers album from the early 80s with you on it. And I Pat Black Pearl or Radioactive. It was a, can't, it was a cover. It was a, pic- it was a picture of you guys, I think, on the back, like in beach chairs or something. That wasn't, that wasn't me. I thought you that, were. Uh, that was Heat in the Street. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. And that was... Uh, that was that was in the late 70s, even before the live album. Oh, okay. And that was uh, Tommy Aldrich gotcha. and Pat Thrall. That was, with, yeah. that was a four-piece band. I'm not as schooled on Pat Travers as I with Kiss. That's I was going to say, you sure are good at doing that to drummers. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, I did that to Eric Singer. He, I, I met him here at a Kiss convention, and uh, I, I said how much I loved his drumming on the second Badlands album. Ah, he wasn't. <laughs> That's funny. It wasn't me. I was like, oh, great. And I was like, well, I feel like a schmuck. Oh, Chris is like, does it again. <laughs> yeah. I'll never live that one down. But, uh, no, that's a trip. But, uh, that's a, well, you were so, you did a lot of work with Pat Travers in uh, yeah. the early 80s period. That the pretty transitional time in music. So, yeah. I mean, what, were you doing some pretty memorable tours on, during the oh, period? Oh, yeah. We, uh, Oh yeah, we uh, we joined uh, when I joined the band. We immediately went in the studio and did uh, Radioactive, mm-hmm. and then we we were like the perennial opening act for huge bands. Like we yeah. opened for Ted Nugent. The first tour I did was Rainbow with Blackmore, nice. Blackmore, Roger Glover, 
was like a deep purple kind of fraction. Right. Bobby Rondinelli, Long Island guy, friend mm-hmm. of mine on drums. That was very cool. And Jolyn Turner was a singer. Wow. And then we on, uh, we did tours with Nugent. That's how I met Derek. Yeah. That was '81. Derek and Dave Kaswini. That's I'm still friends with those guys. They live both live in here in Nashville. As a matter of fact, I'm doing it. I mentioned I'm doing a gig with them tomorrow mm-hmm. uh, in Paducah, Kentucky. Um, uh, Blue Blue Oyster Cult, Heart, Yeah, Aerosmith. When they had the replacement guitar. Oh well. wow! What when year was that? Rick DeFay and Jimmy Crespo. Jimmy Crespo. Yeah. That was uh, had to be like '82. They were a mess at that they point. Were the total, uh, yeah, yeah. It wasn't very pretty at all. It's like, as much as I love the albums they did during that time, they were a dysfunctional mess at that point. They were. They, 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 that was. It's not a very pleasant. Yeah, I've heard some. Sight. Sto- I've heard some stories about Stephen like bringing concerts completely to a halt and just just being a complete wreck on yeah, stage. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's that, amazing they, they came back from all that. They, well, yeah. bless their hearts, man. Yeah. They 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 got to thank the Lord every day. They get out of bed, but they 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 had the wherewithal or the advice, and they took the advice of cleaning up. And yeah. they came up, cleaned up, came back, and they were bigger than ever. Yeah, it's one of the best comeback stories. Of yeah, absolutely. I've ever seen. Yeah. But Travers, at that point in time, during those opening act tours and arenas, used to go do theaters and mm-hmm. you know whatever he had. He had his own little thing, and we co- toured constantly. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to join the band originally because yeah. he had a reputation of being on the road all the time. And he was Polygram, yeah. And I was Polygram prior to that with Benny. Benny was on Polygram, and so was Blackjack. So mm-hmm. the two bands prior to Travers was also, and that's how I heard about. The impending firing of Tommy Aldridge, mm-hmm. and that's why I went for the gig because yeah. the the A and R guy, <clears throat> I don't know if he wants to mention, but his, <laughs> his name is uh, uh, Jerry Jaffe, mm-hmm. called me and said, "Hey, I heard a rumor they want to get rid of Tommy, mm-hmm. so go call this number." It's Pat's manager, David Hemmings, who's mm-hmm. no longer with us, but I went to see David, gave me a cassette, and uh, said, "No, we're not planning on firing Tommy, but here's a cassette of the live show." Uh-huh. So I went home and learned uh, that, the 14 songs, yeah. and then about two months later, I got a call go go down to Florida and audition, yeah. and I did, and then rehearsed with them a few times down there, and did a live gig, and then he told me I was in the band. It was yeah. at the end of 1980. Yeah, sweet. So I was like one of those. Should I tell anybody about this meeting? Who said we're having a meeting? Right. right. What yeah. meeting? Yeah. What meeting? Right. Yeah. We didn't have a meeting. Right. <laughs> All right. I got you. But so a lot of road dogging during those those periods. <clears throat> was yeah. this? I think I don't know. Either you or Kirk told me this when we'd see each other out around shows about uh, that you have this amazing collection of hotel keys. Oh, it's right over there. Right over there. Well, explain how that. How well, this it's just you know you know stealing. Well, I would like to say borrowing. <laughs> everyone at hotels they can have their key back if they call me. So I, I'm just borrowing it. But um, and three of them did call and say we want it back. Or really? Or yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I had to send three keys back, but that's the only situation I had to send the key back. I, that was always, even before I was uh, staying in hotels on behalf of bands, when I used to go on vacation with my family, just that was my souvenir of choice because the, they had the little plastic thing yeah. with the name of the hotel, the room number, and if found, place in every mailbox, whatever, in the city, yeah. the address, and all of that. So that was a perfect, it was the actual key to my room wow. or our room or whatever. Yeah. So that was my souvenir, and and that continued. 
through you know traveling and then bands obviously yeah. I kept every single hotel key I've ever had and I'll, I'll show you guys it. Yeah, you can't see it on the a, podcast yeah but, but we'll get a picture before we leave we'll, okay. we'll, we'll, we'll put it up on a that'll show be fine and, um, so, <laughs> so yeah so every city you've gone to you've saved it everyone that's crazy. Europe Asia South America now it's all basically in America especially it's cards and yeah, in Europe right. now it's cards but up until about three or four years ago when you toured Europe you got this big clunky ass key oh really yeah because the, they have usually the older hotels in Europe now it's all like automated and mm -hmm. stuff but you had a when you got into your room you had to close the door uh, put the key in the in the in the door on, on the inside and yeah. turn the key, lock the door, and that's how ac it activated the electricity in the room. Oh, okay. So as a result of that, they put a big, big ass like not door connected to the key. It was a big, like key thing uh -huh. yeah. with a rubber. So when it hit against the door, it wouldn't mark the door. The right. big and it usually was a big metal thing with the name in the hotel, and the room number, and oh, all wow. of that. So those were the those were the holy grail. <laughs> <laughs> those ones with because it had the name of the city on it, yeah, you know, yeah. or the name of the hotel in a different language. Or in Japan, they had, I have one that was a huge. Krugeran, like a uh -huh. like a huge coin, a Japanese coin or Chinese coin, wow. or whatever, like a replica. Yeah, and that was the key thing. So it, it's uh, so when I lived on Staten Island before I moved to uh, moved to Nashville, I got a call saying, "Hey, uh, the, a museum on Staten Island called Snug Harbor. Hey, we're going to do this re retrospective on all the musicians from Staten Island that went on to do really big things in the music business. Can we come over and interview you? And maybe you can we can borrow some artifacts like a snare drum you yeah. played on a head or whatever." I said, "Sure." So they came over to my house, interviewed me, took the snare drum and whatever, and took some pictures and. I said, I, I don't know what you're going to do with this. They were on their, they were on their way out. And yeah. I said, I got this collection, and they were in these, these potato chip tins, as you can see. Yeah. And I said, I got nowhere. They, they were in the tins. I have no way to display these because they're all different. Right. So I said, well, I don't know what you're going to do with these, but I have this collection. And they went, they freaked out. They yeah. said, can we have those? That's awesome. <laughs> so they took the three potato chip tins and uh, they found, they said they found, they emailed me and they said they found a table in the basement of that museum loaned to them from the Smithsonian where the Smithsonian used to display fossils. Yeah, that's perfect. And it was, it. It, perfect is right. Yeah. It was like. It was like a waist-high table, glass. It was and it had legs that are waist-high, but the table itself was maybe eight to ten inches high, all glass around yeah. the sides, yeah. with a glass top that opened. That's so perfect. you can walk around, you could see inside the thing. And they just dumped the keys. They said, "How many? What was it?" He goes, "We stopped counting at twenty-five hundred. Wow. We stopped." Oh, counting. so you don't have a total number? Of them. No, I don't have a total. But but now now they're in this table in a show in the right in the lobby of the museum. <laughs> Like it was the yeah. showcase piece, and it had the little thing. I can show you the little plaque they put on the That's table cool. describing the, the, the collection <laughs> or whatever. And I took some pictures. I can show you pictures. And uh, so after the, that was a year long loan that I let them go. And then yeah. when I time to pick them up, they put them back in the tins. And I said, "How much do you want for that table? Because yeah. now I got a place to display these. Absolutely, table, perfect." Yeah. Uh, let me check with my supervisor. It turned out that because it was a gift from the Smithsonian Institute, they didn't want to let it go. Oh, so, yeah. that's that's so then they're back in the tins, yeah. and I'm looking. I'm, I'm kind of like in the back of my that. mind. I yeah. need like a, I'm looking for like a used aquarium or 
a terrarium. That's where Craigslist comes in. I know. You can probably find but something. But I'm going to display them at yeah. some point. Now, in, you know, touring America, I always make a habit of writing my room name number on my plastic Ving card, whatever yeah. they call it. And uh, so I, I, I still, I still, still keep the cards. Even. Okay. I just and, hope that the the that revealing this on our show isn't going to cause some class action lawsuit from no, the hotel. It's not. It's not. It's, it's not going to. Uh, I always figured out. I had very creative ways of getting. You know, it, I, I might as well say it. I, I just uh, it, sometimes it came down to me actually stealing. Yeah. Steal. Well, it was always stealing, but it was, <laughs> I, sometimes I would I would say, hey, um, I left my key when I was on my way out to the gig. Yeah, can let's I get say, another I one? Yeah, can I get a spare key? Yeah. I left it, and I'm in a hurry. I can't. You know, so they would give me a spare key, and then when I checked out, oh, did you leave your key? Yep, here it is. Yep. Yeah. You know, I would leave them the spare and keep the original. So that was one way. Another way, when, when they would say, no, we'll, we'll let you back in. Mm-hmm. We'll let you in. When I, we'll let you into your room. So normally they would have security or somebody would come and let me into my room right. to get the spare key. Or they would say, when you come back to the hotel after your show, we'll let you into your room. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't have a spare key. So in that case, I would either just steal the key or I would wait till nobody in these European hotels, sometimes after 11 o'clock, there's no front desk personnel anymore. Mm-hmm. I would sneak behind and they had the little slots behind with the room number. Oh, which you're bad. Oh, I, just, <laughs> I would actually, but that, that was... Commitment that's, to the that is commitment yeah. to the cause. It has to go in, especially if it was a big ornate Right. Yeah. So anyway, that's my hotel key story. That's well, amazing. Well, let's get into blackjack because okay. we played a song last week on uh, the last week's episode. We played "Love Me Tonight" from it. Oh, cool. But um, my main exposure to blackjack is from this video that got put on YouTube a couple of years ago, where it was like a press kit type video. Let me tell you a little story about that video. Yeah. Uh, when we did that video, 1979, mm-hmm. we did it. We did a studio. Polygram play paid because we had Steve Weiss handling us, who was Led Zeppelin's attorney. He was our attorney, so he he had a lot of clout. So we we got the funding to do two videos: one on the roof of Polygram with the helicopter coming in, coming in with the, uh, the mm-hmm. outro and intro or whatever, yeah. and a studio video of "Love Me Tonight." Yeah. And the, and on the roof it was uh, "Live Without Your Love." Yeah. Song. Like and uh, we did the video. We did it. They compiled the two videos. And then in between, they interviewed Tom Dowd, yep. they, uh, our producer. I loved him like he was my musical oh, father. He was amazing. My, still to this day, I, I use what he's taught me 35 years ago yeah. on the drum set. He was like my dad. He yeah. was awesome. But anyway, so they interviewed Tom Dowd, Dickie Klein, who was Polygram Vice President, Freddie Hyam, and whatever, as hyping. And that video was meant to send to Europe uh-huh. to play, to hype, to get European poly, Polydor, Polygram, to show them what their priority was in terms of, you know, and maybe show a video on TV in Europe or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So I, as a, like the hotel keys, everything I've, I, I'm involved, every video I'm involved in, whether I'm in the band or a side man or whatever, I get a copy of it. Mm-hmm. And I got a copy, a VHS copy of it. So, um, <clears throat> uh, 30 years, well, maybe not, maybe 25 years go by. Let's, let's call it 80, 95, between 95 and 2000. Bruce, I see Bruce Kuehler. Hey, hey, Sammy, I know you save everything, man. He goes, I'd like to see that Blackjack video. I go, Bruce, then don't let it out of your, out of your sight. I mean, 
it's a VHS. So I made a copy of the VHS, sent it to him. Mm -hmm. About four days later, I start getting emails from people like fans of mine or something or friends of mine from Scotland. Hey, I saw the blindside. It, it went oh, it, no. not viral, yeah. but it went on. Well, I remember when it came out. Yeah. I'm going, Bruce. What the? F he goes, man. I'm sorry, Sandy, but I gave it to my web guy to put it on my website. Well, once and, you do that, and he, yeah. Well, and he, well, I'm not sure how, but anyway, the guy put it. He made it available. Oh. On, on oh, online, so I, don't, I don't remember. Just make a copy, but he ended up putting it online. Right, but once it's on, once it's on a website, then it can you, be it can be, ca right. it can be so, captured. So anyway, and then put he on ended up putting it on his website. Oh. That's what it was. Oh uh, yeah, and it went so whatever. So it was like, well, as a fan, I liked it. <laughs> yeah, so it was cool. I mean, yeah, so that's where the video. That's, that's, how, that's how it ended up online. I watched it. it. Didn't, it wasn't online since 1980, obviously. Yeah, um, but yeah. That was a good. It was a good. It was my first foray into professional rock and roll. It was my yeah. first. My first album deal, and it was a band situation, and mm -hmm. it was. It had a lot of potential that gig, but never it's a good band. Fun. All good, all good players. Yeah. How'd you get recruited for that? That's a, that's a, that's kind of a story. Um, uh, I moved to L.A. I told you I lived in L.A. in the late seventies, and. Um, I became very good friends with a hero drummer of mine, Carmine Apice, the Vanilla Fudge. And I, I, I went to see his clinic when he was in the Fudge. I would just started playing drums. He was always my hero, whatever. And then I moved to L.A. and I met Carmine at a party, and I reminisced with him about the clinic in Kings Highway in Brooklyn and whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and I asked him if I could use him as a reference because I was in, in L.A. before I did anything famous trying to get my first big break. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, well, I can't really uh, recommend you until I hear you play. So I ended up getting this, a few weeks later or whatever, I ended up getting this gig with Steppenwolf, one original, oh, yeah. one original member, Goldie McJohn, mm -hmm. was the original keyboard player, and he put a Steppenwolf band around himself. And God rest his soul, he just, this guy, just Goldie, just passed away oh, a few really? weeks ago. So I was in rehearsing with Steppenwolf at SIR in LA, and Carmine happened to be there rehearsing with one of his projects. And I said, "Hey, Carmine, how you doing? Come in and hear me play." So he heard me play. He goes, "Sandy, you could use my name as a, re a reference." Awesome. awesome. So things were happening in LA, or I should say, they weren't happening in LA. It's a long story. My first marriage was falling apart. I was broke. I was wanting to quit the music business. I wanted to move back to New York, and all of this stuff. And there was a voice on side inside me that said, "Keep going." Yeah. First of all, you know that that's what you want to do, and you spent all this time, you moved 3,000 miles to do it, keep going. And another voice has said, well, if you stop, what are you going to do? Are you going to work in a record store? What are you going to do? Are you going to bag groceries? What are you going to do? I, I, I kept going, so I went. To the library, Billboard magazine put this talent management directory out once a year. I got the talent management directory, and I made note of the addresses of 50 managers that managed bands that I really liked. Be not the fact that I was going to get a gig with one, but maybe they know somebody, or maybe they have another band that's in the same sure. musical style. Right. So I sent the 50 resumes out, and the resume consisted of my my hard copy of a me and my drum set a photo stapled on the front page of this 11 by uh -huh. 8 by 8 and a half by 11 and inside was typewritten uh, you know the lessons I took and but the res the reference was one mm -hmm. Carmine Apathy yeah 
sent it out to 50 managers. Nobody called me back except Steve Weiss, uh -huh. Led Zeppelin's attorney. Now, the thing, the thing is, the serendipitous thing here is, and that's why I believe in a universe and I believe that things happen for a reason if you keep going and, you know, you, you knock on the door mm -hmm. and it'll be open. Well, I was fucking knocking on this, <laughs> this career door. Uh -huh. And no one called me back, as I said, but Steve, and, and the, the, the resume was addressed to Peter Grant, who was manager of, the manager of Led Zeppelin, based in England. Right. But the address in the Billboard directory said 444 Madison Avenue, New York, New York, 10116. It was Kara Swansong Records. Mm -hmm. and Peter Grant, Kara Swansong Records, the New York address. So that's where I sent it. It never got forwarded to England. Steve Weiss, who ran the label and was their attorney, opened up the resume. Right at that period of time, he was shopping a cassette of songs written and played on by uh, and sang by Michael Bolton or Bolotin at Bolton, that point yeah. and Bruce Kulick with a session bass player and drummer. He was shopping this yet unnamed band around to the different label presidents, uh -huh. not the A and R people, the presidents of the labels. Right. right around this time, my resume arrives at Swan Song. He doesn't forward it to Peter Grant. He opens up the resume and goes, "Oh, I'm looking for a drummer right now. This is wow. a drummer. Who's this guy, Sandy Gennaro?" The punchline of this story is he goes to the second page and sees my reference and sees Carmine Appice's name there. And Steve Weiss used to handle the Vanilla Fudge, which was Carmine's <coughs> former band right. years wow. earlier. Awesome, I'm going, man. what kind of synchronicity yeah. is this? That's so he calls me. The next call, the call, like the only guy out of 50 managers that even returned or called me mm -hmm. in Los Angeles was Steve Weiss. Hey, Sandy, it's Steve Weiss. I'm the attorney for Led Zeppelin. I'm, you motherfucker. If you're somebody from L.A. playing this joke on me, because that's the way sometimes people in L.A. are. Right. Oh, no, 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 Sandy. No, no, no. You sent the resume to Peter Grant. Blah, blah, blah. I'm the attorney. Oh, sorry, Steve. Right. What can I do for you? Well, and he explained the story. He's looking for a drummer. We need a bass player and a drummer. Would you want to come to New York to audition? I got a high ref a re uh, referral from Carmine. Yeah, right. Including New York, got the gig. Right at that time, uh, uh, they flew in Jimmy Hassler. Yeah. He was on the road with Tom Scott at the, at the time. So we rehearsed for a couple of days, five songs. And then maybe three or four days later, we, we auditioned for Polygram. Well, we auditioned for a bunch of labels, yeah. and Polygram was the highest bidder. And we ended up getting, long story condensed, we ended up getting uh, signed to Polygram. And then a couple of weeks after that, we auditioned for Tom Dowd. Wow. And Tom Dowd doesn't produce new bands. No. He, you know, I'm not going to go into Tom Dowd's resume, but it's Google Tom Dowd, D-O-W-D. Yeah. Right. It's also a great documentary about him. Too. Oh, it was an awesome documentary. Yeah, yeah, it's one of my awesome, favorites. Yeah. Awesome documentary. And uh, I'm still, I'm friends with his daughter, yeah. Dana Dowd, Facebook. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so he produced the record. And, and I'm going to myself, I'm sitting in Criteria Studios in Miami. Tom Dowd's behind the desk. I'm there, and the red light's on. I'm going, man, four, four months ago, I was about to throw the sticks in the fireplace. Yeah. Here I, you know, so there's a lesson there where if you have your goal in mind, just, you know, obstacles are put in front of you to allow you to learn. Mm -hmm. And obstacles are put in front of you by the universe to test how bad you want what's on the other side of that obstacle. And that's my theory. Yeah. So you just, if you have something, in, in, you know, a goal in mind, mm -hmm. just go for it. Go for it, 
regardless of what happens, man, you go over the obstacle on the side of it, under it, but when you come out on the other side, you're even stronger because you learn from that obstacle. Right. right? So that was that. That's happened, and we had we had a guaranteed two album deal. We toured with Peter Frampton for a little little while uh, in support of that first record, and um, did a second record up in Woodstock at Laban Held Studio with Eddie Offord, oh, wow. quote unquote, producing it. He was kind of an absentee producer. Bruce and, and Michael basically produced that second record. The Blackjack record was called Worlds Apart. All right. And um, and then from there. Rehearsing with Blackjack, I ended up getting tapped on the shoulder by Benny Mardonis, heard me rehearse with Blackjack at the rehearsal studio and asked me to play on his record, mm -hmm. which Into the Night came off of that record, which is one of the biggest hits I ever played. That's a big hit. Yeah. So that was the beginning of the dominoes falling, wow. you know, and then one gig led to the next, yeah. led to the next. That's the way it is. That You know, when you wow. think positive and you have a goal in mind, mm -hmm. yeah, you might be thrown off that path to do different things from unexpected situations and stuff that occur yeah but the dominoes will fall yeah. you know and after i get off of one tour i don't know when the next tour is going to come but i get the call well i saw you with this whatever it's 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 uh it's a very interesting uh the, what i call 1099 world you know <laughs> yeah. the freelance musician world is a yeah. very interesting thing man it's like yeah, there's nothing like it. It's like only a strong survive. Yeah, basically. absolutely. Because if you're weak-willed or you have any kind of doubt about your ability, and it's not an ego. No. It's a quiet, it's a confidence. Yeah. And the confidence comes from being prepared. Mm -hmm. yeah. But if you have that confidence in you and you just you just got to keep going regardless of what happens. Yeah. You know? And Blackjack was loaded with great players all of you I mean, yeah. and you all went on yeah. to do great stuff yep. I mean, it's, it's, yep. it's pretty impressive how, how well it turned out for all four of you guys. it sure did and, like, and there's a KISS connection to all four of you like you did the thing with Peter right. Bruce wound up in KISS right. Michael wrote Forever with Paul Stanley for right. KISS which was one of their biggest hits that's right and Jimmy ghosted for Gene Simmons on Creatures of the Night that I didn't know yeah that he plays that. He plays on at least a handful of the tracks on Creatures of the Night wow yeah. and who was on that record was uh, Eric was uh, Eric Carr? Carr was in the band and uh, Vinnie Vincent had taken over you. for Ace well, I didn't know that Jimmy played on those songs yeah. that's awesome yeah he's, he's the bassist on a number of those tracks so yeah, it's awesome. there's a kiss connection. We can find a kiss connection. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you say it's so huge in the kiss world somewhere. It's everything's there good. Is. Well, and they've been around so long; they're connected to everybody. Right. I'm convinced. But uh, we last week we played that 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 blackjack song, and and Chris made a big kind of a big deal about like we're we're breaking the Bolton barrier, you know, and because Michael Bolton for rock and rollers. Isn't usually looked on. Well, right. Yeah. You don't think of him when you think of hard rock. You know? yeah. But when you look back at that early Blackjack stuff, and even those first couple of solo albums he came out with, he had a very David Coverdale kind of Robert Plantish image style very much. going on. He was he a was rock uh, back he was then. that first Blackjack album. Your reviewers re, uh, regarded him as like a Seeger, yeah. Seeger Rod see Stewart kind of guy. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was it, that was an awesome experience. And yeah. the, the the thing that stands out about that blackjack experience is my association with Tom Down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it takes my breath away when I think about it. And the, being a band member, I could stay a criteria. And yeah. after my basic tracks were done, I stood through the overdubs, yeah. through the vocals. <laughs> through the mix I was just a fly in the wall man because yeah. I knew this guy was a fountain of musical oh, knowledge right. and the way he got 
Bruce to play certain parts. I was in the control room, so I heard the little banter between the control, uh, Tom and the engineer, yeah, yeah. and whatever. But how he he had to produce his psychology down to a pat. He had an idea of what he wanted us to play, but he would bring it out of us. He wouldn't dictate to us the part. Mm-hmm. He would somehow do, do like a little, oh, you're getting warmer, yeah. you're getting warmer, that kind of game. Yeah. And then when we hit it, he would go, you're freaking awesome, Sandy. Bruce, that was awesome. What a great intro. That was the one I suggested earlier. <laughs> you know, he would tell the engineer. So he, he would get the Bruce, let's say, to... Yeah. To play a part that there's that a psychology to it. Oh man! Yeah. And Bruce would go, "Oh, thanks, Tom." Yeah, he would, you know, that would bolster his confidence in himself and right. in sure. myself. Being right. the first, first thing that I ever did, and I'm setting the criteria. Yeah, and that's like, and pretty face. intimidating. Just the scenario, yeah. man, it was like it was just it was awesome. It was, yeah. it was real. I'm very, very fortunate to have that. And as I said, I still I still listen to Tom Zow's voice in my head when I'm playing. The, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and uh, that doc- I, well, I didn't know much about him until I saw the documentary on him. I, it just happened to come on TV one day, and I I DVR'd it, and I must have watched it ten times. I mean, it just, it's just I fascinating. It. I have it on on DVD. I yeah, know, I haven't watched it in a long time, but I'll tell you what. During that session, um, we went. We had I think we had like a twelve to nine schedule every day, mm-hmm. noon to nine, and we used to take a dinner break and go out. We never he never had dinner brought in. We used to go out to a restaurant and. And have it. So we're sitting in a social, and he would have the stories, and the stories oh, yeah. that Tom Dowd would tell, man. Yeah. From you know Ahmed Erdogan and Jerry Wexler, when he was the engineer yeah. for those guys. Yeah, he was on the ground floor of all of it. Aretha, yeah. Wilson Pickett, yep. Otis Redding, all those guys, the early Atlantic stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, but so I had like three, four, five weeks of nightly dinners with this man. Yeah. But the but is when I put the DVD on, uh-huh. his documentary, I learned stuff that I never heard. No. Like, in other words, I heard so much more than he was even... That's crazy. In five weeks of dinners, right. I found out stuff that I never knew about the guy. That's amazing. You know? Well, the stuff with, like, the, so the bomb testing and all that. The from Secret early City to... and yeah, all that Yeah, I shit. was like, oh, my God. It's not he just... didn't speak about it. He, didn't, yeah. he, he alluded to it. He was... I used to be a physicist or something. Yeah. He, but he never spoke in detail about it. I didn't think he felt really good about being part oh, of it. Oh, you could tell yeah. he didn't. But it just when I saw that in the movie, I was like, wow. Can you imagine starting from that and then going on to all this rock and roll history? Just- you know, on Facebook, it was about a year ago. I, I have I uh, I have it. I have it here. I, I don't want you can't see it on the podcast, but I yeah. I have it here. Uh, it might be upstairs, but it was the track sheet. It was it was a, a tape mm-hmm. box from Criteria, the blackjack track sheet. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, and I took a picture of the track sheet and I posted it on Instagram. And Dana Dowd, uh-huh. the daughter, oh, Sandy, awesome! And that 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 kind of went viral on Facebook. Yeah. It was the, the actual track sheet from that session. Was With cool. Tom's writing and everything. Tom, well, I don't know if it was Tom's or writing, but it had Tom Dowd. It was yeah. the engineer probably, but yeah. it was it had all the all specifics the of the episode. It was awesome. That's wow. cool. Well, now on paper, I see Blackjack is a band that should have went to the top, you know, on paper as far as like the musicians and the songwriting and everything. But you had a trajectory with that band that only went so far before Michael Bolton and it, Bolton ended up becoming Michael Bolton. 
where was what went wrong? Do you think? Well, I I always wondered that same thing, yeah. and it wasn't that the band broke up because Michael wanted to go to solo. The 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 band didn't happen. Um, the first album and the story I got from various A and R people at Polygram that worked that record was that. If they were to put that, because it was the top priority of Polygram in '79, it was hyped yeah. a lot, and everything on the everybody on the Polygram roster was put on the back burner because every all the promotion department was given the edict from the president: this is the priority project for this record for this year, wow. and the first Blackjack record. And in addition to that, they hired a bunch of independent promotion people, so trying to get it played on the radio. The story I got. Uh, from several A and R guys, was that if you they put out that record like a normal record, mm -hmm. it would have went further than it would would because mm -hmm. it was hyped so much when they program directors put it on, they were expecting the best thing since White Bread. Right. But it it was good, yeah. but it wasn't. It didn't fulfill the hype, in other words. Right. And that basically, it. you know, it tried to the Love Me Tonight was the first single that yeah. caught fire a little bit, but. Mm -hmm. And then Without Your Love was the second single, and but it didn't sell as what they expected. Yeah. And with the video and all the tour support, all the upfront recoupable finances that we had gotten from Polygram, we had to go gold. I think we had to go sell 500,000 copies before we the band even made a penny. Wow. But that was one of the only situations where I was an equal band member. Yeah. yeah. So it was, uh, you know, I got, I got a view of that part yeah. of the business being an equal partner in the band which is kind of cool but the band gelled good personality wise the band gelled good personality wise as I said for the second record uh, um, we, we did it a polygram and basically the polygram's uh, disposition during that second record was just to fulfill the contract it was like we gave it a shot now there we're just going to be yeah. done so yeah. you go to Woodstock do what you need to do mm -hmm. and, and again Eddie Offord was an absentee kind of producer so you know, Bruce and Michael basically produced that second record. And once that came out, we never really toured and supported that oh, second record. Also didn't have much of a so chance, it just so. kind of dissolved. They, yeah. they, they didn't pick up the option polygram for the third record. We had a five option, five, seven album deal, but two, only two were guaranteed. Right. So for the third album, they dropped the band. When the, they dropped the band, then Michael went with Columbia right. and got his own deal. And then mm -hmm. I think Bruce played on that first, uh, first black, uh, first uh, Michael Bone solo record. Yeah, he did. Uh, so, um, so that that's that's basically gotcha. it. you know if, if it became successful, we might be we might be still together. Yeah, yeah. You know because we're all still playing, yeah, and singing, and uh, so if we had reason to stay together, we might have because we all got along really yeah. good. Yeah, and uh, and you know there was no issues personality wise in the band. Hmm. We all. We were all very happy with our positions in there, and we were all given opportunities to submit songs. I was given opportunities to submit lyrics, so it was all a very kind of democratic yeah, thing. Right. Bruce and Michael were the principal writers, they were. and Michael was a singer. Yeah, but you know, what was, is what is Jimmy up to these days? I haven't heard much about him. I'm not really sure. Um, I know he was with the Yellow Jackets mm -hmm. for That's a long, long, long time. He was the musical director for that. It was like a jazz thing. He's I think he's probably doing sessions and stuff in Los yeah. Angeles. He's based in LA now and um, originally from Long Island. Mm. And we kind of email every yeah. once in a while, but I haven't seen him in a really long well, time. Well, let's not forget the most fun part of Blackjack was Jimmy and Bruce both had incredible mustaches. <laughs> it was a spinal tap situation. Yeah. You know, on that second Blackjack album, it's right on there on the yeah. wall that you uh -huh. see upper right, lower left. It was like, man, it's like. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was a spinal. It kind of looked a little bit like Spinal Tap. Bruce changed a lot from Blackjack to Kiss. He did. Oh man! Well, this has been fun. We want to. We do an albums unleashed series. I'd like to sit down with you another time and and maybe do the first Blackjack album like track by track. Oh, that'd be great. I'd love to. I'd love to do that. Because yeah, we a few times I've mentioned that I've that I've met you and that you live here like oh you gotta get him to do that blackjack yeah. oh, and absolutely. you're gonna you're gonna be appearing if you're hearing this the week of release uh, you're gonna be one of the guests at the Rock and Pod Expo we have going next yes. weekend I'll be there Friday night playing with some friends of mine that we uh, do a tribute to Bad Company and Paul Rogers yep. uh, that'll be Friday night yeah. at at the Cobra in East Nashville the Cobra yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Saturday I'll be at the Rock and Pod, which will be yeah. at that's at Music Valley Event Center. It's okay. over by Opry Mills. And uh, okay, yeah. So yeah. That, that's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. I hope to see you all. I'll, yeah. be, I'll be up there in a booth signing some stuff. And so you'll sign a few Blackjack albums while you're I'm there. I'm sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Maybe a Monkey album or two. Maybe. That, yeah. And yeah, there's a Monkey's podcast that's looking forward to talking. Awesome. To yeah. Well, thanks for doing this. You're very welcome.